It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. I grew up with things that today would be considered obsolete. Uh, something that's obsolete, it's old, it's no longer in use because it's been replaced by something that is far better. So in order for something to be considered obsolete, it can't just be old. Uh, it also has to be replaced by something that's better than it was. Now, two of the things from my childhood that I used often that are now considered obsolete are cassette tapes and Walkmans. You know, for those of you who are young, a cassette tape was a a magnetic, had a magnetic tape rolled up within it. Uh, It could hold about 10 to 15 songs if you were lucky. Uh, And if you wanted to skip from one song to the next, or even harder than that, from like one song to like three or four after it, you had to hit this fast forward button and the tape would just move, but you had no clue when your next song started, so it was all a guess and you kind of had to time it and maybe you go for about 15 seconds and you hit play and you listen and you go, oh, nope, I'm still on the same song, and then you fast forward it a little more and then you put play, oh, I went too far, and then you got to rewind it and go back and you had to get it just right to to get to your next song. Um, but you know, when I was a kid in the 80s, they came out with this amazing portable technology. Because before this, you know, you put your cassette tape mainly in something like a stereo system that was at your house, and then they came out with the boom box where you could actually carry this huge thing with like 10D batteries in it around, and you know, everybody and their mom would listen to it with you because it wasn't just for you. And then they came out with this technology of this portable way to listen to music called a Walkman, and you could put your cassette tape in that, you could put your uh, headphones in there and listen to that. Um, but you know, today, the cassette tape and the Walkman, they're, they're considered totally obsolete. And the reason they're considered obsolete is not just because they're over 30 years old, but it's because they've been replaced by something far better. The technology we have today to listen to music is so superior. I mean, you can listen to literally thousands of uh, uh, songs on your phone or your iPod or MP3 player, digital sound that sounds so much better. Uh, And if you want to skip to a new song, you don't have to hit fast forward and wait for 20 seconds. You just touch or slide your finger to the next album even or the next song. You can even slide to where exactly uh, you want in the middle of the song. And we just have much better technology today. So when I was a kid, you know, most people, you know, they had a collection of music on these cassette tapes and they listened to them outside the home with these Walkmans. And that was the height of technology at the time. But you know what? You go to someone's house today, you don't see a collection of cassette tapes. You don't see people out and about listening to Walkmans. 
because they are obsolete. They're old and they're no longer in use because they've been replaced by things that are far better. Now, something important to note about things that become obsolete is they're not obsolete because they were bad. Uh, they, they're not like, well, they're obsolete because there was something wrong. The te- uh, cassette tape, the Walkman, you know, they weren't bad. They were the, the height of technology in the 80s. They were considered great and awesome at the time. So the reason they're obsolete is not because they're bad. It's just because they've been replaced by something that's superior, by something that's far better than what they were. Now, the reason I'm sharing about things that are obsolete is because at the end of Hebrews chapter 8, the author says something very important as he's giving this kind of comparison contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant that's going to lead us to what we're going to look at this morning in chapter 9. He says this. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the author of Hebrews, as he ends chapter 8 and verse 13, he says, you know what? God has made the old covenant and all that goes with it obsolete. It's been replaced by something far greater in the new covenant. Now, in the first 14 verses of chapter 9, the author is going to expound upon this thought of the fact that the Old Covenant is now obsolete and the reasons for why it has become obsolete. And it's going to do that by contrasting two things concerning the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at these two contrasts that reveal to us some reasons why the Old Covenant is now obsolete and why the New Covenant is superior to it and has replaced it. And the two things that the author is going to contrast are really centered around the earthly tabernacle of the Old Covenant versus the heavenly tabernacle of the New Covenant. And the main point the author wants us to understand is that these two main things that are being contrasted here, two main things that the Old Covenant couldn't provide for us that the New Covenant does, is showing why the one is obsolete and the one has replaced it, and why we should never go back to what is obsolete and only stay with what is better. Now before he addresses these two contrasts, the author paints for us this picture of the earthly tabernacle in verses 1 through 5. And and it's an important picture for us to to grasp and understand because he's going to use this picture of the tabernacle and the priestly service to kind of make his two points, uh, these two contrasts he's going to share with us. And so we're going to start by looking at this picture of the earthly tabernacle and the priestly service that the author paints in verses 1 through 5, which says this. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid with all sides with gold in which there was a golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. 
So the author tells us that the first covenant, referring to the old covenant, the first covenant that God gave before he gave the second new covenant, it had ordinances of divine service. So God had established these ordinances, these specific things that the priests were meant to do inside this earthly tabernacle under the uh, old covenant that God had established. And the author describes for us a bit of this earthly tabernacle for us. Now, the tabernacle itself and all the things that God told them to build and put in it, it's a fascinating study within itself. And, you know, uh, when we went through Exodus, I did a detailed study about the tabernacle, and we're not going to do a detailed study this morning. So if you, you know, kind of see some things here and you're like, you know what, I really would love to know more about that, then I encourage you to go on our website. You can listen to that and you can get a, a better, um, deeper understanding of the tabernacle and what was in it and what the things represented and what they meant. This morning, we're not going to go into detail. And the main reason why is because the author doesn't. Notice in verse 5, he says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Okay, so he's like, I'm just reminding you of things you already know about the tabernacle. I'm not going to go into detail explaining all this stuff because that's really not his main point. But he's using this picture to kind of get to his main point. So I think it's it's healthy for us and and useful for us to do a quick little uh, overview picture of the tabernacle because they were definitely far more familiar with it than we might be today. And so here is a picture of what the tabernacle would have looked like and each of the elements there in the tabernacle I've labeled so you know what you're looking at. Uh, And in the first five verses, notice the author, he's really only mentioning the tabernacle itself. So that, that structure that has the holy place and the holy of holies, that's the actual tabernacle itself. And then there's, you know, lots of things around it with the gate and, uh, the, the, the barrier and the outer court and the bronze altar, the bronze labor. He doesn't mention those things. He just focuses on the two different parts of the tabernacle. So the first part of the tabernacle, which also the author refers to as the the sanctuary, or as Exodus refers to it as the holy place, that's a place where you have the golden lampstand, you got the table of showbread, you have the altar of incense in this first part of the tabernacle. And the second place, which the author refers to as the holiest of all, or Exodus refers to as the holy of holies, it's the part that was separated from the first part by this huge veil. And in the holy of holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you have the mercy seat with these cherubim that are looking down on it. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, you had this jar with manna, You had Aaron's rod that was used in the Exodus that had now budded. And you also have the tablets of stone that have the Ten Commandments on them. Now, when you do a study of the tabernacle and everything that God had them put in it, you see that it is an amazing picture of Jesus and his work of redemption for us. You know, if you start from the outside, from the linen barrier and the gate, and you work your way all the way to the Holy of Holies, you see three amazing pictures concerning God's plan of redemption for us. First, you see God's plan to save us 
through the linen barrier, through the gates, through the brazen altar, which shows us our need to be pure and righteous, but the fact that we aren't, and there's only one way to be that way, you have to go through the gate, which represents Jesus. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the brazen altar is where the sacrifice was made, focusing on Jesus' death on the cross to give us purity and make us righteous. Second, you see God's plan to sanctify us through the bronze laver and the whole holy place with the lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. It shows us our need to have Jesus wash us through his word to be our light, our bread of life, and our intercessor. And third, you see God's plan to give us complete access to him through the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, which shows us the blessings of the new covenant. Because the blood was there on the mercy seat, God is able to give us mercy. We are now able to be forgiven and have access to Him. So the author paints for us this picture, this picture of the earthly tabernacle, but he wants us in this picture to understand there are two main limitations that are connected with this earthly tabernacle, and the priestly service that was conducted within it. And the first limitation in this earthly tabernacle, the author reveals to us in verses 6 through 8. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So once the tabernacle and all the things that God commanded the Israelites to build and put in it, once they, they erected that, once they built everything and put it inside, then the priest at that moment started to do their priestly duties that God had commanded them to do. And the author is telling us that the priests always went into that first part of the temple and they did their, their priestly duties in there. Remember, the, the first part of the temple is the holy place. And in there it has the, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And so the priests had to take care of those three things. And so they would come in and each day they would replace the bread there was 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They had to be replaced each and every day as the priest came in. There was only one source of light in that holy place, and that was this golden lampstand. And so they had to come and they had to trim the wick, and they had to add oil, and they had to make sure that light was continually burning. And they would also all, uh, offer incense on uh, the altar of incense. And all of this was a daily thing that these priests would come and they would do this in the holy place. But the author goes on to say in verse 7, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So the second part, the first part is the holy place. The second part is the holy of holies. And the author says only one guy went in there. In the first part, lots of priests would come in and out and do that service. But in the holy of holies, only the high priest, only one day out of the year, the day of atonement, would come in to the holy of holies. And he would come in with blood. 
the blood of the sacrifice. Not only the sacrifice that was made for the sins of the people, but before he would sacrifice for the sins of the people, he had a sacrifice for his own sins. And so he has the blood of the animal for his own sins, and he has the blood of the animal for the sacrifice of the sins of the people, and he's bringing that with him. He's going to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. He brings it into the Holy of Holies. Now, it's something that's interesting. The author doesn't bring up uh, in these details that I think is important for us to note here is that before the high priest could come into the Holy of Holies, there was a list of things very clearly laid out that God required of him. And God was very specific. You better do all of them or else don't dare to come in my holy presence because you'll be struck dead. And so there was this cleansing, this full cleansing of his whole body with water, but it was water that had the ashes of the heifer that was sacrificed. You had to put it in the water, and it had to rinse, uh, cleanse the high priest. There was a special linen cloth and different things that he had to wear uh, in order to go in the Holy of Holies, which was different than what he wore in going into the holy place. And most importantly, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own personal sin, all the sin that he committed from the last day of atonement to now, that he had to have himself covered and right before the Lord. But even after doing all of those things, the high priest, when he entered the Holy of Holies into the, the awe-inspiring presence of the Holy God, he entered with fear and trembling hoping that his cleansing, his personal sacrifice, his clothing, all those things were enough to make him pure enough to be able to stand in the holy presence of God without being struck dead. You know, Jewish tradition tells us something very interesting, that they would tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest and at the bottom of the linen uh, robe that he had, there would be these little bells. And the purpose of the bells was so that the priests in the holy place, so they're separated by this large veil, they could hear the bells moving. And they would know, okay, the high priest is still doing his function, he's still okay. But if there was no sound for a while, they would have to conclude, something's wrong. If he's moving, the bells are ringing, there's no movement, maybe he's dead. But guess what? We can't go in. The high priest can only go in once a year. Anybody who dares to go past that veil is going to be struck dead instantly. How are we going to get this guy? Well, that's where the rope came in. They tied that rope to the ankle because if some high priest didn't do all the things he was supposed to do and walked into the presence of holy God and he was struck dead, there's only one way to get him out, and that's to pull him out. Now, I want you to picture that you are the high priest. You have this rope attached to your ankle, which is this reminder that if you aren't fully right with God and have done all the things that you should, He could strike you dead. You just completely washed yourself hoping it's good enough to cleanse you. You've put on all these different types of things that you've been required, hoping they did it just right. And most importantly, you've just made this sacrifice and you're probably thinking of all the sins that you've committed up to this point of this year and hoping that animal and that blood is enough. Because I'm about to walk in to the holy presence of God and if it's not enough, I'm dead. And I can just imagine that his hands were shaking as he carries this bowl of blood. Blood from a sacrifice that he hopes 
covers his own sin and the sin of the nation of Israel. So he entered with fear. He entered with trembling. It wasn't this intimate, wonderful, I'm in here worshiping God. He went in to do his service and he got out hoping that I actually survived this. Now notice what the author says in verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. The way for you and I to get into the presence of God in the holiest of all or the holy of holies was not yet made manifest. It wasn't made clear how that would happen under the first tabernacle while it was still standing because under the first tabernacle in the old covenant it said hey no 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 there's a barrier nobody gets to go into the presence of God except one man the high priest and he only gets to do it one day out of the year and so for the rest of the time nobody has access nobody can be in the presence of God you see the author's reminding us that under the old covenant And in this earthly tabernacle, access to God was very, very limited. Only the high priest had that, and only at a very limited amount of time. But you know what? This limited access also involved a lot of fear and trembling. The high priest didn't enter boldly. He entered fearfully. He was full of fear, hoping he did enough not to be struck down in the presence of God. Now, the complete opposite is what we have in the New Covenant. And this is what the author is trying to do, demonstrate the limitations that are there within the Old Covenant and the earthly tabernacle, and then turn and show us how there's no limits in the same way under the New Covenant. And so what I want us to do is just jump down to verses 11 and 12, because that's where the author makes this contrast of what he's just shared about the limitations in the access to God, the limitations in the way that they would approach God because they approached in fear and trembling, and how that's very different within what Jesus has done for us under the New Covenant. So it says this in verses 11 and 12, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He says, Jesus came as high priest of the good things to come. Good things that the old covenant couldn't produce good things that are only available for us under this new covenant. And Jesus came as our high priest with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation. We looked at in chapter 8 that contrast of the difference of the heavenly tabernacle that Jesus serves in versus the earthly tabernacle and how Jesus has the eternal perfect tabernacle that God made versus the uh, temporary imperfect tabernacle here that man created. Now with the earthly tabernacle, the high priest, he entered the Holy of Holies with blood. But it was the blood of animals. Jesus, he didn't enter the heavenly Holy of Holies with the blood of animals. He entered with his own. And what a difference. 
You see, in the Old Covenant, the high priest wasn't the sacrifice. Oh, he killed the sacrifice. He spread the blood of the sacrifice, whereas under the New Covenant, our high priest is the sacrifice himself, and he shed his own blood in order to pay for our sin. And since Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was once and for all, very much different than the Old Covenant sacrifices, which were continual and continual and continual. Jesus did it once, and it dealt with every sin. The author tells us it enabled him to enter the most holy place in heaven once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, since Jesus' sacrifice completely dealt with all of our sins, he is able to offer anyone who puts their trust in him eternal redemption. And one of the wonderful privileges connected with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and this eternal redemption that he provides is complete and bold access to God. You know, Matthew's Gospel tells us an amazing thing that happened the moment that Jesus died. He says this in Matthew 27, 50 and 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And so at that moment, Jesus has now died. And notice what happens right at that moment. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So right after Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the veil in the temple, it's torn in two. And notice it's not torn from the bottom to the top, something that a man could try to do. It's torn from top to bottom, something that only God could do. And God did this to reveal an amazing truth. You see, the veil was a barrier, a clear barrier. You are not allowed to pass. You are not allowed to go into the presence of God. There is a barrier keeping everybody out except one guy one time a year. Everybody else, sorry, no access. And when Jesus died on the cross, God is making this wonderful, powerful symbol. I am tearing the veil. Why? Because access to me now is complete. That limited access is no more. I have paid the price for the thing that was keeping you separate from me, which is your sin. And now anyone can come into the Holy of Holies who places their trust in my Son, Jesus Christ. So under the Old Covenant, there was a limited access to God, but under the New Covenant, the veil has been torn and there is now complete access to God. And it's not the kind of access that the high priest under the Old Covenant had with fear and trembling of like, oh, I get to get in here, but I hope I don't make any mistakes. I hope I'm fully clean. I hope my sacrifice was good enough. No. We get to come without fear we get to come with complete boldness. Why? Because we know that Jesus completely paid for all of our sin and that we are totally forgiven. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we come to God's throne and to God's presence, we're our, we are told, we are encouraged, come boldly. I give you that privilege because your sin has been dealt with fully and completely. And now we have complete access. Access that we don't have to come with fear and trembling, but access where we can come with boldness, knowing that Jesus paid completely for the thing that kept us 
from the presence of God. So the first contrast that the author gives us between the Old and New Covenant to show why the Old Covenant is obsolete is the Old Covenant had a limited and fearful access to God, but the New Covenant has a complete and bold access to God. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of looking back upon the Old Testament as we contrast it with the New and think, well, man, that thing was horrible. No, there was nothing wrong. It wasn't a bad thing. It was great when it was first instituted. I mean, think of this. From the time of the Garden of Eden, when people actually had Adam and Eve full access to God, when they sinned, boom, it was gone. And from then on, all the way until the first tabernacle was built, that whole time, there was no real access to God. God finally says, you know what? I am now making it possible for you to have access to me, for you to worship me the right way. I am doing this. And so this was a great, wonderful thing. It was limited access, but it was still far better than no access. And so when you look back at the Old Covenant, at the time that it was given, it was amazing. It was something new. It gave them opportunities that they never had before. And so this was something that was wonderful, but yet it was limited. And it became obsolete because God gave something far greater in the new covenant. Once Jesus died on the cross and God established this new covenant, it's now the old covenant becomes obsolete. And now we have this far greater access through the new covenant. So the first limitation that the old covenant had was it was limited in its access Limited in the fact that you had to come with fear and trembling. But there's another limitation that the earthly tabernacle had under the Old Covenant. And we're going to see the author shares that in verses 9 and 10. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with food and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So here the author tells us this earthly tabernacle, it was symbolic. Symbolic for the present time. Now this Greek word translated symbolic is parabole. It's where we get the English word parable. So whenever you're in the Gospels or really in the New Testament at all, and you see the word parable, it's always this Greek word. It's just interesting that they chose to translate it um, symbolic here as opposed to parable, but this Greek word means to place one thing by the side of another in order to compare them, and most commonly a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus was the master of this. He, he takes what they are familiar with to teach them something that they're not familiar with. Here's an earthly thing that you guys are real familiar with, but I want to teach you a heavenly truth, and so I'm going to use this, and I'm going to bring it alongside of a heavenly truth to help you get it. Now, I love this just because the author is saying, that's what the tabernacle is. It's like a giant parable, an amazing picture. All these earthly things that God had them put into it and establish it, it was to be a picture of something heavenly pointing them to something that God would do in the future. As I pointed out earlier, everything in the tabernacle from the barrier to the Holy of Holies, it had a heavenly 
meaning. It had an amazing picture of God's plan of redemption to save us, to sanctify us, and to give us complete access to Himself through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You see, one of the points of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, it wasn't to redeem God's people. It couldn't. It didn't have the ability to do it. It was a parable that pointed them to the redemptive plan that God was bringing. It helped them recognize, you need to be redeemed. Help them recognize you need your sin to be properly dealt with. And it was pointing to Jesus. As we looked at before, the law, that's what that was. It was our, uh, Galatians says, our tutor to draw us, bring us to Jesus. It just showed us, hey, you're a sinner. You don't meet God's perfect standard. You need a Savior. That was his main purpose. Point us to Jesus, the tabernacle and all the stuff. Same thing. Point us to our need for the ultimate Lamb of God to be sacrificed for us. One of the main reasons the tabernacle and the sacrificial system couldn't redeem the people of God is because it was very limited in what it could do towards sin. And we've looked at this before and and it just covering sin, but the author brings up something new. Something that maybe we don't often think about. Uh, It's a consequence of sin. The old covenant, the tabernacle, The sacrificial system, the author wants us to see, it could not deal with a guilty conscience. Notice what the author says in verses 9 and 10. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concern only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. The author here is revealing something very important about another limitation under the Old Covenant, under this earthly tabernacle, and this whole sacrificial system. You see, the gifts and sacrifices that the high priest offered, both for his own sin and also for the sins of the nation of Israel, they could not make the high priest who performed those sacrifices perfect in regard to his conscience. See, what this is saying is that the sacrifices that the high priest offered, they couldn't deal with the fact that he's had a guilty conscience. Why do you have a guilty conscience? Because he's guilty. He's a sinner. He committed a bunch of sins. He made a sacrifice for those sins. But guess what? That sacrifice, it might have covered and it might have pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, but it did not remove his guilt, his shame that came because of the sin that he committed. And the author is just building that even bigger. If the one who's the high priest, who has access to God and none of you do, if the high priest who's making a sacrifice on your behalf, if he can't have his conscience cleared, guess what? Neither can you. Nobody under the sacrificial system were able to have a clean, clear conscience. Their consciences were guilty. They were filled with shame. You know, God created every person with a conscience. Our conscience is connected to our soul. It helps reveal what is morally right and what is morally wrong. Encourages us to things that are morally right. Discourages us to things that are morally wrong. And a lot of that is a feeling within us. When you do things that are morally right, there's a feeling of goodness. But when you sin, you do things morally wrong, you have this feeling of guilt and shame within you. And this is a good thing. 
It's good. It helps us know that we've committed sin. It helps us know that I've done something morally wrong that goes against God's perfect standard. You know, having a, a conscience is something that's beneficial, but it's horrible when you have to live with that guilt and that shame, and there's no cleansing, and there's no way to deal with it. And that's what it was under the old covenant. The animal sacrifice, it covered the sin the person committed, but it could not remove the guilty conscience because they committed the sin. And as we looked at last week, the old covenant, it just dealt with the external things, but it didn't deal with the internal things. Under the old covenant, when it came to the law, everything was external. The law itself was external. It was on external tablets of stone. And there was nothing within the people to motivate them or to empower them to actually be able to keep the law. So it's just an external thing. But under the new covenant, as we looked at last week, God says, hey, I'm changing your relationship to the law. I'm now going to put it in your mind and on your heart. And I'm going to give the power of the Holy Spirit to you so that you can actually do it, which you could never do under the old covenant. Well, now the author points out once again, under the Old Covenant, there's still this problem with only having dealing with external things and not internal things. And this is why he says in verse 10 that the Old Covenant, this earthly tabernacle, were connected or were concerned, sorry, only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Notice this list that he gives here, all external. There was all these external requirements from what you put in your body and ate and how you wash the outside and these fleshly ordinances. There were so many external things that had to be done, but the problem was it didn't deal with the inner person. You see, our conscience, that's something that's internal. And the Old Covenant had no way of helping people overcome that internal guilty conscience. External laws... External sacrifices, external ordinances, you know, they don't deal with internal guilty consciences. Well, now the author tells us that all these external things in the Old Covenant were imposed by God until the time of Reformation. What the author wants us to know is that God never intended this system to be permanent. He never intended the earthly tabernacle to be permanent, the old covenant to be permanent. He imposed it only for a time until the time of Reformation came. And so it's like, hey, I'm going I'm to establish it here, and it's only going to last until the time of Reformation comes, and then I'm going to replace it. At that point, it's going to become obsolete. The Greek word translated Reformation means to make straight, to restore, to put back into its proper place. This word would be used to describe the, the placing of a bone that was broken. It's broken, it's out of place, and now we're going to put it back into its proper place. Well, ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind has been removed from his proper place of that intimate fellowship with God. As we're told in Genesis that Adam and Eve walked with God in the evening. They had that intimacy, that fellowship, but you know what? It was broken once they sinned. And from that moment all the way to Jesus Christ, there was this brokenness in our relationship with God. We couldn't have that intimate relationship with Him. We were removed from our proper place. And so when Jesus came, He came to restore us back to that proper place. He came to make it possible for us to have that intimate relationship with God again. And the way He had to do that was to deal with the thing that kept us from it, our sin. 
And so when the author says, until the time of Reformation, he is speaking about the time that Jesus would come and sacrifice himself on the cross for our sins. So the author is saying, hey, God only imposed the old covenant, this earthly tabernacle, until the time that Jesus would come and he would sacrifice himself once for all for the sin of everyone on the cross. And once Jesus did that, God no longer imposed the old covenant on his people. It's no longer necessary. What it's been pointing to is now come. What it's been telling that you need is now here. And so now I'm going to replace it with the new covenant. And now this old covenant is now obsolete. You don't need it anymore. One of the reasons the old covenant was replaced with the new covenant is because it couldn't deal with guilty, shame-filled consciences. Well, now we're going to see how that is contrasted with what the new covenant does for our uh, conscience. The old covenant couldn't do anything. What does the new covenant do? Verse 13 and 14 tells us this. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the author is making this contrast. Under the old covenant, there was the blood of bulls and the blood of goats that the high priest would sacrifice and he would sprinkle. And if that would bring the purifying of flesh under the old covenant, under the sacrificial system, he's saying, well, how much more will the perfect blood of Jesus, the perfect lamb without blemish, how much more does his blood impact you? and me from dead works to serve the living God. You see, under the old covenant, nothing could cleanse your conscience because animal sacrifices and their blood wasn't enough to do that. Under the new covenant, you can have a clean, guilt-free conscience because Jesus' sacrifice completely deals not only with our sin, but the consequences. And one of those consequences is that guilt and that shame, it deals with our conscience. Now notice what the author tells us our clean conscience is meant to cause us to do. And this is something I think you know many believers, and Paul deals with this as well, miss. It's like, oh, now God has not only forgiven my sin, but he's dealt with the shame, he's dealt with the guilt, and oh, wow, wonderful, now I have this freedom to just sin more because God's going to deal with those things and he's going to you know, take away the shame and take away the guilt, and how wonderful, no. As Paul says, should I sin more that grace may abound? Certainly not. Notice the purpose. Well, what is it to cause me to do that I have a clean conscience now? The end of verse 4, it should cause us to serve the living God. It shouldn't cause us to indulge in sin. It should cause us to serve the living God who has done all this for us and who has made it possible for us to have this clean, clear clear conscience because I know a lot of people who don't serve because they're they're struggling with guilt and shame and they're not bringing those sins to the Lord and not confessing them to Him. And God's saying, hey, I'll clean you. I'll take away the guilt. I'll take away the shame. And I want you just to turn around. I want you to serve me. And I think it's very interesting. There's two different words for serve in the Bible, and one often is referring just to a servant serving in different capacities. We see that a lot. But then we have this word, and it's specifically used to reference the service of priests, the service of those who would do the priestly service unto the Lord, religious ceremonial service. 
And he's saying, that's the kind of service I want from you. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. And dear friends, do keep in mind that you are henceforth to serve the living God. You that are acquainted with the Greek will find that the kind of service here mentioned is not that which the slave or servant renders to his master, but a worshipful service such as priests render unto God. We that have purged by Christ are to render to God the worship of a royal priesthood. It is ours to present prayers, thanksgiving, and sacrifice. It is ours to offer the incense of intercession. It is ours to light the lamp of testimony and furnish the table of showbread. God wants us to use that clean, clear conscience to serve Him like the priest did. So the second contrast that the author gives us for between the Old and New Covenant to show us why the Old Covenant is obsolete is the Old Covenant couldn't give us a clear conscience, but the New Covenant does. This is one of the great blessings that we have. It is horrible to have to live life with that guilt and that shame of your past and what you've done. Jesus not only sacrificed Himself on the cross to pay for that, but He also says, I can cleanse you from that. I can remove the guilt. I can remove the shame. And I just want you to live for me and to serve me and give your life for me. But you know, Jesus only does that for those who believe in Him, those who ask for forgiveness, those who come to Him for cleansing. For those who don't come to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing, they just have to continue to live with that guilty conscience filled with shame. A sad example of this is in the life of Albert Speer. Albert Speer was Hitler's chief architect whose technological genius was credited with keeping the Nazi factories humming during World War II. He was the only one of 24 criminals tried in Nuremberg who actually admitted his guilt. He spent 20 years in prison. And after he got out of prison, he wrote the book Inside the Third Reich Memoirs by Albert Speer. And in his book, he writes about his crimes and more significantly, his constant guilt and shame for all that he was a part of. He went on ABC's Good Morning America to be interviewed about the book. And the interviewer says, you have said your guilt can never be forgiven and shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? Spears responded, I served a sentence for 20 years and I wish I could say I'm a free man and my conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as a punishment, but I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime and I can't get rid of it. The new book is my atoning, me trying to clear my conscience. The interview followed up with a question, you really don't think you'll be able to clear your conscience totally? Spears shook his head and said, I don't think it will be possible. For 35 years, Albert Speer accepted complete responsibility for his crimes. His writings were filled with contrition and warnings to others to avoid his moral sins. He desperately sought to be freed from his guilty conscience, but it was all of no avail. And it's such a sad story because Albert Speer could have found freedom. He could have found freedom from his guilty conscience and his shame if he would have come to Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness of sins, but he never did. He went his whole life with that guilt, with that shame of his sin. And he was desperate to be freed from it, but he didn't know where to go to it. If you're struggling with a guilty conscience, come to Jesus. Ask for his forgiveness. He 
promises to give you that. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus doesn't just forgive your sins, He also cleanses you. It brings that place where you come and you're no longer feeling those feelings of guilt and shame because there's a cleansing that He gives you when you confess your sin to Him. And what a wonderful promise for all of us. You know, I'm grateful that my Walkman is obsolete and it's been replaced by something far better with greater technology. But you know what? I am far more grateful that the old covenant is obsolete. That it's been replaced by a far greater new covenant. And I receive those wonderful blessings and so can you. It enables me to have complete and bold access to God. It gives me a complete conscience before Him. And my challenge to myself and to each one of you is take advantage of these two wonderful things that the new covenant offers that the old covenant never could. You have complete access to God at any time and you can come boldly to His throne of grace. So take advantage of it every day. Think about, wow, what a privilege that is and actually utilize that privilege. You know what? If you'll confess and repent your sin to Jesus, not only will He forgive you, but He will clear your guilty conscience. So each time, and it's not like, well, I accepted Jesus and now it's all clear. Every time you sin, confess your sin, and He's faithful to forgive and to cleanse. Bring those things to Him. And so often, we don't want to confess. We want to continue in those things. And we just live in that guilt. And we just need to bring it to Him and allow Him to forgive us and to cleanse us and to remove that guilt and that shame. Don't be like Albert Speer and live a life full of guilt when you can live a life full of for Jesus, serving Him, free from guilt and shame. 